Did you know that in April of 2016, the European Union deported 12 Syrian refugees back to Turkey? Though these refugees were in need of asylum, they were denied because of the xenophobic forces influencing EU policy. Public figures in the EU and the US are once again discriminating against refugees, and in the process transporting us through a time warp to the early 20th century. At that time, the dehumanization of refugees facilitated the ratification of immigration restrictions against them. My name is George Topolitis, and this is the Ottoman Greeks of the U.S. podcast series in the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. All interview clips used in this podcast series are with descendants of immigrants from the former Ottoman Empire. A hundred years ago, discriminatory public rhetoric resulted in the drafting of the most restrictive immigration legislation in U.S. history, the Immigration Restriction Act of 1921. The Act's main provision established annual quotas based on a 3% immigrant admission rate per nationality. Lawmakers derived this figure using the number of U.S. residents' country of origin as reported in the 1910 U.S. Census. When the quota was exhausted for a given year, any additional immigrants were deported to their country of origin. This legislation had detrimental effects on some of the most vulnerable targets of the time, 90 Armenian and Greek refugees from Smyrna. Smyrna was a wealthy port city on the western coast of Asia Minor. It hosted many western merchant companies and supported large trade networks within Asia Minor and beyond. In the spring of 1922, Smyrna's influential Greek inhabitants had every reason to be optimistic about their position in the city's future. The Greek army landed in the city on May 15th of 1919, and had since then successfully campaigned eastward to the outskirts of Ankara. The Turkish army, led by Mustafa Kemal, failed to curtail the Greek advance in the summer of 1920. The Ottoman Empire was on its last breath. Meanwhile, and according to the following testimony from a descendant of Zmirna refugees, life in Zmirna coasted along. When he was a kid, the sultan was still there, and they would have in the cafe you know, all the male people of the community spent their life in the cafeño. And he said they had the heroes of 1821 up on the wall, you know, pictures. But whenever the soldiers from the sultan, they knew they were coming, they would pull those down and hide them and put the sultan's picture up. Because they would come in and, you know, check and see what was going on. Yeah, I remember him telling me that story. And then once the soldiers were gone, they put the heroes back up again. When news spread of the Greek front's collapse in late August 1922, panic gripped the city's Greek and Armenian communities. On September 1st, the exhausted Greek soldiers entered the city by foot, and in the process justified the panic of Smyrna's inhabitants. By 10 p.m. on September 8th, the Greek governance of the city ended, and the last Greek troops departed for Athens by September 19th. On September 9th, Mustafa Kemal, fresh from his victory over the Greek army two weeks prior, arrived in Smyrna. He issued a warning that the Armenians and Greeks of the city should not be harmed. However, that warning was not effectively enforced. Four days later, the Armenian quarter of the city was the starting point of a fire that consumed it and all of the Greek quarter by September 16th. These events were catastrophic for the city's residents as attested by a descendant whose family experienced them firsthand. My great-uncle, his wife, and his children, I think there were two of them at least, may have been more, I don't know, but at least two, they were murdered 
That was the word that was used by my great aunt. Um, I think they were marched off somewhere. And she, she used the word machine gunned to death. And she was supposed to be married, actually, the weekend after that happened. They had set for the wedding. But when that happened, they killed the groom, they burned the house that he had built, of course, the place burned down, and along with it, all of her prika, all of her stuff that she had ready for the marriage. And she barely escaped rape, actually, because, only because she ran into the area of town where there were European people and a French family took her in off the streets. They were, the soldiers were after her, and they took her in. And I guess they wouldn't mess with, you know, foreign people, European, French families, and like that. They only messed with the Armenians and the Greeks. And so she told us about all of that. And then after it was over, she went and found her mother, who had somehow escaped all of this slaughter. and probably due to the foster son that they had taken in, who's in these pictures. And all of them together, I guess, went down to the waterfront and were able to get on a boat and go to Piraeus. Both Greeks in Greece and the Ottoman Empire alike recognized Myrna as the emblematic cosmopolitan city of Asia Minor. As is the case with the modern Syrian refugees, the nearby Aegean islands of Lesbos and Hios were initial stops for the Smyrna refugees before journeying to mainland Greece and other Western destinations, including the U.S. The journey for the Armenian and Greek refugees from Smyrna was arduous and long. This was due to the cold power ship engine technology of the time, as well as the quarantine hold times at refugee camps in Constantinople, Thessaloniki, Piraeus, and Patras. The refugees left Piraeus aboard the SS Acropolis on November 2, 1922, for the island of Syros. After making port, the ship proceeded to Patras and arrived there on November 10. At Patras, 200 refugees from Constantinople were urged aboard. Horace Stiles, the U.S. consul in Patras warned the Greek authorities that the immigration quota pertaining to Armenians and Greeks for that year had already expired. The ship spent 34 days docked in Patras due to a cruise strike and lack of provisions for the journey. Finally, on December 13th, the ship set out for Valletta, Malta with the refugees from Smyrna on board. The fuel was entirely consumed during the journey to Malta and the crew started to burn wood from the ship itself for additional fuel. The Acropolis reached Malta on December 18th and stocked up on coal and provisions. While there, the ship's captain deserted and the ship's crew continued the journey to New York. The Acropolis made two more mandatory stops for fuel in Algiers and the Azores. During this journey, two babies were born on board. According to a New York Times article, the Acropolis reached New York Harbor four days later, but, quote, immigration officials refused to permit any of the immigrants to land until the federal authorities in Washington had ruled on the cases of Greeks, Armenians, and others whose quotas had been exhausted, unquote. 
Ellis Island doctors and clerks were the first officials that the refugees encountered upon their arrival to Ellis Island. These agents documented immigrant arrivals, screened them for diseases, and determined if they would be admitted, quarantined, or deported using a rudimentary process. They were checked as they were leaving the boat, and there was somebody with a piece of chart that wrote something on their clothing that indicated, you know, a limp, cockeyed or whatever the symptoms the person looked like they had. So they were taken aside and given more attention to whether they were going to let them in. There was somebody who got sent back three times for whatever reason. And the fourth time was the child. Seven refugees were hospitalized, and one of the seven, Ankino Ashakian, passed away in Ellis Island's infirmary. The refugees were facing deportation to Piraeus, due to the Greek officials embarking them despite the consul's warning. It was at this juncture that a New York City-based attorney, Malcolm Vartan Malcolm, became involved. I'm a Harvard grad, class of 1913. In 1916, I moved to New York City and resided at 2 Rector Street. In 1919, I authored a book entitled The Armenians in America, and five years later I testified in a case challenging the legal obstacles that Armenians encountered in attaining U.S. citizenship. Originally an immigrant from Sivas, Turkey, myself, I became the Smyrna refugee's primary advocate to the press. You could say that I'm somewhat of an advocate for Armenian immigrant rights. Malcolm evoked the literacy exception of the Immigration Act of 1917 for religious refugees in order to acquire a writ of habeas corpus. Federal Judge Learned Hand was responsible for issuing the writ. Hand was born in Albany, New York, and graduated from Harvard in 1896. He moved to New York City in December of 1902 and married Franz Frank. His wife was a well-known Philhellene and may have impacted Judge Learned's disposition toward the Smyrna refugees. When they arrived at Ellis Island, Hand was the presiding federal judge in New York City. He granted a writ of habeas corpus to Malcolm, and thereby a stay of the refugees' deportation order and a hearing of their case. His action was standard legal procedure, but it also challenged the authority of Ellis Island agents. The writ only applied to 51 Armenian refugees on the Acropolis. However, the reportage contested the timeliness of the writ's delivery to Ellis Island Commissioner Robert E. Todd. According to Todd, the ship was already underway when he received the writ. Malcolm insisted that the writ was served to the commissioner at 5.30 p.m. prior to the ship's departure, and not at 6 p.m. when the ship was already en route. Additionally, an official on the ship offered to stop it and allow the Armenians to disembark, but Todd refused. In Malcolm's own words, After obtaining the writ of habeas corpus from Judge Han, which would have enabled the Armenians to obtain consideration as persons persecuted for their religion, which they are, I telephoned to Ellis Island to announce the fact and to arrange to put the men, women, and children off the ship. I couldn't get the commissioner at first, but talked to a Mr. Landis, who refused to listen to the suggestion that he should confirm the issuance of the writ and take the people off the ship. Malcolm relayed Todd's statements to the press and exposed him as a nativist ideologue. It was too late to get over to Ellis Island with the writ, so I went to the battery with Mr. Jones, an official of the Faber line, who had two tugs ready to go down the bay and take off the persons named in the writ. Mr. Todd came on a late boat. I served the writ on him. 
He was extremely angry. He said no such raid had ever been served on him before. He said the Armenians were a dirty lot and that he would do nothing for them. Mr. Todd repeated that they were in excess of their quota and that he would not give the authority to do this, writ or no writ. In the same newspaper article, Todd defended his decision and rejected Malcolm's accusation. Oh, we can't pay any attention to telephone communications. We don't know anything about where they're coming from. The fact of the matter is that the writ was not served until it was too late to act on it. The United States District Attorney has ruled that we are not to interfere with ships that have started on their way. If we interfered in this case, the ship would have been held up for hours. How could we know whether we were getting the right ones? In regards to the charge that he referred to the Armenians as, quote, a dirty law, unquote, he replied, I used no such language and said nothing that reflected on them in any way. Despite his defense, the publication of such a charge may have tarnished Todd's reputation. Although the exact cause is unknown, Henry Curran relieved Todd of his post later that year. The Acropolis's journey ended with its transfer of the Smyrna refugees to New York. This was the ship's final voyage by that name. The Boris Shipping Company purchased it at some point prior to April 28, 1923, and renamed it as the SS Washington. The SS Madonna, belonging to the Faber shipping line, transported the Smyrna refugees back to Piraeus, Greece, on February 9, 1923. The Smyrna refugees and modern Syrian refugees' experiences have a lot in common. Both were expelled from their native lands, which were obliterated. They both followed the same escape routes to the U.S. And the same xenophobia endured by the Smyrna refugees is now an obstacle for the Syrian refugees' path to asylum. In the winter of 1923, that xenophobia resulted in the deportation of the Smyrna refugees back to Greece. The legal options and technological tools available to U.S. officials today can and should facilitate a better outcome than deportation of Syrian refugees. We would like to thank you for listening to the Ottoman Greeks of the United States podcast series. We hope our first podcast was informative and that you enjoyed our brief journey back in time. Stay tuned for more episodes.